I want to welcome those of you in our Fredericksburg campus, and of course, those of you here at our Stafford campus. My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here, and uh, that means a few different things. Uh, one of the joys of being a student pastor is you can do a lot of things that real pastors don't get to do. Uh, on my first Sunday, some 14 years ago, at a, at a different church, I wore shorts to church, and I, I immediately freaked out. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm wearing shorts to church. So I went up to one of my pastor buddies, and I said, hey man, is it okay if I wear shorts? And Neil said, you're the student pastor. You can wear whatever you want, which has been a guiding ph philosophy in my ministry from that day forward. Uh, so to be transparent, I tell you that story because I know Pastor Law says I'm supposed to come up here and have a nice long introduction that helps you relate with me and that eases us into the text, but I didn't do any of that. Um, I speak to a demographic of students upstairs, high schoolers, that have the combined attention span of 11.2 seconds. Uh, if I launch into a big flowery introduction, they're gone in a second. So our habit is just to kind of like dive right in and we, we're going to be literally all over the place. We're gonna be in Micah, we're gonna be in Isaiah, we're gonna be in Luke, we're gonna be in Romans, but the, the bulk of our text will come from the back end of Isaiah chapter eight and the front end of Isaiah chapter nine. So if you wanna get there now, you can go ahead and do that, and while you guys do that, we're gonna begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God, and we thank you for giving us your word inspired by your spirit that we can know you and as a result know ourselves and who you've created us to be. We ask that by the reading of your word this morning, we come to a transformational realization about the power and greatness that you are and that emanates through us this Christmas season so that other people can come to know you. We ask these things in the Son's name, amen. So as I said, uh, my name is Jason and we're gonna be digging in to Isaiah chapter eight and this is kind of a dark time in our, our family history, our collective family history. Uh, we're coming out of the reign of King Solomon here, and even if you've never picked up a Bible, you've probably heard of King Solomon. He's a rather famous figure in literature, and he's famous for his wealth and his wisdom and his accomplishments. Uh, he arguably had as mo more money than anyone that has ever lived. Uh, he arguably was as wise as anybody that had ever lived, and people traveled to marvel at what he had accomplished. He built the, the Jewish temple, which was one of the ancient wonders of the world, and this was a very successful time in our family's history. But upon his passing, uh, his son didn't lead as well as he did, and, and a lot of the nation was burdened by the heavy taxes to keep up with the king's lavish lifestyle, and uh, they weren't really feeling that, so they came and complained, and the king was basically like, no, not only uh, are you gonna pay what you have paid, but you're gonna pay more as well. And so the tax burdens got to be too much, and 10 of the tribes split and became what's called the Northern Kingdom, and two of the tribes became what was called the Southern Kingdom, and as you can understand, Think of this like a Thanksgiving family squabble times a million. Uh, there was tension between the two nations. They, they were brothers and sisters in essence, but they didn't get along very well. And as time goes by, those differences are magnified. And where we pick up the world power at the time, the Assyrians are about to take over Israel, the northern kingdom. And as you can understand, the, the southern kingdom this is filled with a lot of anxiety and trepidation and, and questions about what's gonna happen next and why is this, because not only is the northern kingdom about to be conquered, but now the world power that devours nations is sitting right at our gates. 
So this is a time with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety and a lot of angst about what's gonna happen next. And that's where we jump in to Isaiah chapter eight, verse 19, where the prophet says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on the behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. As is most of our habit, when we're going through something, when we're going through a period of trial or darkness, we seek out wisdom. We go to somebody who's been through it or we go to one of our friends and we say, how do I navigate this? And, and that's what's happening here is, is that there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of unknown. So our ancestors are going off and they're consulting people about what's gonna happen next and, and what should we do and they're consulting the wrong people. He says, why are you consulting people that commune with the dead? When you call the living God your ruler, you call Jehovah God, you call the one who controls everything ruler, shouldn't you be going to him? Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, looking upwards, will curse the king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness." He says, the people that you're getting information from have no hope. Their future is distress and anger. And once they arrive at their destination, they're gonna scream out at their ruler and scream out at their God, why have you abandoned me here? Every single one of us can relate to this. Every single one of us has known what the right thing is to do, done the other thing, and when we got the fruit of our labor, screamed out to God, where are you? Why have you left me to figure this out on my own? Every single one of us has pulled out the metaphorical gun, shot ourselves right in the foot, and gone, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling very holy, because we're, we're quoting scripture while we question God. And he clearly says, consulting wisdom other than mine will lead you to a destination that you don't want to be in. There's no hope in those words. There's no light in those words. All that is following a path that is not mine is distress and despair and anger and angst. So don't be surprised when that's your destination. But thankfully, that's not where the passage ends. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. He says, hope is on the way. I understand your situation is dire, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. He says, for those who see no way out, for those who see no hope, take heart because a light is coming. Help and hope are on the way. You have enlarged the nation, God, and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. There's a victory. We struggle to re relate to joy about a harvest because our equivalency of a harvest is we pull a few peppers out of our garden and then we go to the grocery store to get the rest of the ingredients. But in an agricultural nation, a bad harvest meant a really bad winter. 
So if you pulled in a good harvest and your future was secure and you knew you were gonna have enough food to eat, it was time to throw a party because the victory had been known. We fought with these crops for months. Now we've got them in there and we know our future is secured. We can relate better to the warrior imagery because we've all seen the pictures of the warriors coming home. We've all seen the pictures after World War II, the happiness, the joy, the victory. He's saying, look, Take heart, because even in your darkness, victory is just on the horizon. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, every rod of their oppressors. He says the separation that has plagued humanity is on the precipice of defeat. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in the blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. He says the battle is over. You can take off the armor. The rags that we use to treat our wounded can now be thrown in the fire because we will no longer need this stuff again. The victory is at hand, the battle is won, the fight is over. But how was it won? What is the sign that the battle is over? And I know right now, this is not what you expected from Christmas. <laughs> you probably expected me to come up in a green or red sweater and go, yay God. Well, we're, we're gonna get there. It's right here. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and it will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hope, freedom, and victory come from a child. And we know this is not just talking about a regime change. We know this isn't just talking about a next king to lead us out of this present darkness because of what the prophet says as he continues. He says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He says there will be a child and there will be no end to his reign. The peace that he brings, the rule that he gives will be everlasting. And you know that it's going to happen because the Lord has spoken. He says not the mediums and the spiritists that tell you what you want to hear or give you their best guess or give you whatever they think should happen, but the Lord the one who creates boundaries, the one who defies explanation, the only being in existence that truth flows freely from his mouth and says this is the victory at hand and it will come for no other reason than I say this is how it will come. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the names of God. We've been looking at this passage and we've been looking at King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Mighty God and Wonderful Counselor. And I'm really excited to look at this passage today because we're gonna look at the name Everlasting Father. And I'm excited to look at it because we struggle with everlasting. We are really good with finite concepts. We are really good with things that have a beginning and an end because we can easily wrap our minds around that given that we also have a beginning and an end. Everything that we speak about, our schedules, we know when something begins and we know when something ends. We are subject to time. And so we wrap our minds around those concepts very easily. I know most of you. Most of you are exceptionally busy people. And so I know that even without a clock or a watch, you can ballpark what time it is within 10 minutes at any given moment. 
because you know how long it takes you to get to work. You know how long your algebra class is. You know how long whatever practice or whatever you're doing. And parents, you know this intuitively. There's an internal clock in you that every night at bedtime rings as loud as you can possibly hear it. And you know, without even consulting a clock, that it is bedtime and it is time for your children to be in bed. They do not have that internal clock because they are children and haven't determined it yet. But we who have grown up with schedules, we know what time it is. And in daylight savings time, when our body says it's 8.30 and that clock says it's 7.30, we rebel. I know what time it is better than that clock does. We know time because we know we are finite beings. But our God is not. He's infinite. So we struggle with understanding his infinite wisdom because we can't wrap our minds around it. And it, we can prove this very easily. We are in a constant state of change. I bet you about half of you can tell me what this is. Exactly. Every one of you that laughed knows what that is. Every one of you that didn't laugh is going, what? And I see some parents explaining it to their children right now. That, my friends, is how we used to get information. You would have your parents take you to the library and you would pull out the drawer of the card catalog and you would find the book that you needed to read. But before that, in elementary school, you would have a really nice half hour lesson with a very nice lady you called the librarian that would teach you how to utilize this and the Dewey Decimal System. Exactly, half of you were like, oh yeah, I'm on it. And half of you were like, the what? I could have really blown your minds and put a rotary phone up there. Right? because things change quickly. How we get our information changes quickly, but not only how we get our information, the information that we procure changes very quickly. In 1901, the US Navy called manned flight a vain fantasy. In 1903, the New York Times published an article saying that it would take between one million and 10 million years for man to figure out how to fly. And the whole point of the article was to say we should not waste our most brilliant minds on this project, our most brilliant mathematicians, and our most brilliant engineers. They should spend their time doing things that we can actually accomplish, not this vain fantasy of man flight. Nine weeks after that article was published, the Wright brothers took their famous flight. Today, the US Navy owns more planes than ships. Things change very quickly. In 1950s, you can see cigarette ads where four out of five doctors recommend camel. <laughs> Guess how many doctors out of five recommend camel today? There's a warning on the package now that says, hey, from the United States Surgeon General, if you smoke this, you're gonna die. It was like 70 years ago. Things change quickly, and we know this. 
And so we hold on to facts loosely because we know that today's diet plan or tomorrow's workout plan or today's truth is tomorrow's foolishness. And 50 years from now, some pastor's gonna be up there mocking us and what we believed. So we work with the best information that we have, but we know that we are in a constant state of change. We know that when we make plans, it's a starting point, not a destination. And this is the best way that we can compare our finite nature with God's eternal nature. Our plans by necessity will change, and they should. When new facts come to light, you change your plans. You do not keep doing the same thing over and over in, the, in light of new evidence. That's foolishness and arrogance. We have sayings about it. No plan survives contact with the enemy. Everyone has a plan until what happens? Exactly, you get punched in the face. By nature, our plans change. By his very nature, his plans never change. Every word that comes out of his mouth is certainty and truth and excellence. From the beginning of time till the end, he is the only being that never has to update the plan, that never has to have version 2.0, that never needs to update the textbook. And in this, we see the huge gap between God and us. And we can see it from the very beginning of our history. In Genesis chapters one and two, we see the creation of what we currently live in. And God calls it good. And it's good for a variety of reasons. There's no death. The divine and the earthly commune regularly. There's peace, there's harmony. And we get this great glorious description of this glorious garden where it is awesome to live. And then in Genesis chapter three, we get the corruption of that perfect civilization. As humanity decides to do things that God has offered them an alternative to. They say, we understand what your plan is for us, God, but we would rather do that. And as a result, we live in the world that we currently do and not the world as it was intended. And so we pick up the first hints of his plan as early as the creation story in Genesis chapter three, where the Lord says to the serpent, and I, I need to pause here for a second, because when I read that, a lot of us, because of teaching we receive, read, the Lord says to the possessed snake. But the word for serpent there is nakash. And nakash has layers of meanings. Just like we have words that have layers of meaning, the Hebrew word nakash has layers of meaning. It can be translated as a noun, as snake, but it can also be translated as divine and can also be translated as shining one. So Jewish thought doesn't see possessed snake here. Jewish thought sees a divine entity actively trying to corrupt God's perfect creation. And as a result, the following scriptures make more sense when we approach it with that line of reasoning. God says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first revealing of God's plan to put back to rights what we put wrong. And this is how the people that carried scripture and wrote scripture would have seen it. 
that in Genesis chapter one and two, we see everything as it should be. And then from Genesis chapter three on, we see God's plan to put back what went wrong with his original creation. All the way from the third chapter of our book through the end, when we read, we read his great plan to put back in order what was thrown into chaos. And this is how we approach it. And this is this plan all the way back to beginning of time. And we can follow those breadcrumbs without, throughout human history to see the consistency and excellency of his plan. The prophet Micah says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Junia, Ju- Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. He says, hey, The plan is still the same. I'm going to give you a little bit more information. The deliverer, the son that defeats the darkness, the son that delivers you is going to come from Bethlehem. And we know that they knew this because once the wise men appear on the scene and leave, what does Herod ask? Hey, where is that king of the Jews supposed to come from? And what do his advisors tell him? He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. And there's more bread comes throughout history. In Isaiah 53, The prophet says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He says, who is listening? Who is listening to the plan that the Lord is laying out? Who is watching as he reaches into human history and shows his plan to us? He grew up before them like a tender shoot, like a root out of the dry ground. Look, he's gonna grow up right in front of you. This isn't gonna be a mystery. It's not gonna be hidden from you. You're gonna watch all of these breadcrumbs unfold. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. He didn't come as a conquering hero. He didn't come as the prince of a king. He was born in a shed in backwater Palestine in a city called Bethlehem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He talks about the suffering of this child. And if you continued reading in Isaiah chapter 53, he would talk about his death and then he would make the very bold prediction that we wouldn't see the last of him after he died. That despite watching him be executed, he would come back again. And that is how you would know this was the child of promise, the one that ends all wars, the light that the darkness cannot put out. And all throughout our history, a plan spanning thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Our plans struggle to make it for five minutes without change. But here, our eternal and infinite God lays out a plan that spans the course of history that needs no revision that we can watch come to fruition in a manger in Bethlehem. But we still are slow on the uptake So Jesus gathers his followers after his resurrection and explains it to him. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I laid the plan out 
The plan didn't change for thousands and thousands of years. It's all right there. Go back and look. Here, I'll help you. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And those that Jesus taught how to connect the dots of God's plan wrote things so that you and I could connect the dots of God's plan. Jesus came and he did a lot of things. One of the things he did and one of the things he came to do was to blow our minds about how big our God is. To show the difference between our finite existence and the infinite eternalness of his being. When we say things like all-powerful, we cannot imagine how much more powerful he is than us. When we say things like all-knowing, we don't even know what that means. But Jesus comes on the scene to remind us and to remind them specifically, I know you came thinking that I would deliver you from Roman rule, but I came for a much bigger purpose than that. I came to free you from something much more dangerous than the Romans. I came to free you from spiritual death. And to do that, I know I'm going to have to blow your mind. So I'm going to do things that you never thought possible. Think of all the things that Jesus did in his short life here on the earth. He went to waves and said, hey, stop that. You ever want to know the gap between you and God? Go to the beach and tell the waves what to do. You ever want to know the gap between you and God? Go to a blind person and say, now you can see. And then run. Because you don't have it like that. Go to your friend on crutches and say you can walk. Go to the grave of one of your friends and say, come on out, just like Jesus did with Lazarus. And then upon your death, let me see you again. It is impossible to communicate how big the gap is between finite us and infinite God. It is a gap that you and I had no hope of bridging. We can't even understand it, much less traverse it. And that's why we celebrate this season. And that's why I love the name Eternal Father. King of Kings, great name, implies distance. It's about his authority and his sovereignty over the earth. Lord of Lords, same thing. Mighty God, same thing. We use these names to illustrate his power and authority and majesty because you don't just walk into the throne room of the king unannounced. You don't get to just go see the king without an invitation. Lord of Lords, there's a hierarchy of bosses. You can't just call the top man at your company. There's a chain of command that you have to go through. All of those names imply distance except for one. Eternal Father. Father is a family word and family implies intimacy. What the child did, the child of promise from Isaiah, the child in the manger, is he bridged the gap that you and I had no hope of ever bridging. He came on finite earth to show us infinite God. And more than that, he came so that finite us could know infinite God, so that we could call him Father, so that we could be adopted, 
so that we could be heirs to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I bring you great news that you will watch the fruition of thousands of years of revealing of God's plan. You, out here in the field, will have the privilege and honor of going into Bethlehem and seeing thousands of years of planning come to fruition. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you and he is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praying God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Let's go to Bethlehem and see what has been promised by our fathers and their fathers and their fathers and their fathers. Let's see the whole reason that God called us out of darkness into the light. Let's see this child that was always part of the plan from the very origin of our creation. Let's see how God bridges the gap between our existence and his. The appearance of Jesus invites us into our everlasting Father's presence. No longer strangers, no longer subjects. This is the great love that our Father has lavished on us. That while we walked away from him, we have the honor of being called the sons and daughters of God. And that is the promise of the eternal in the major. Paul says it like this. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. There's a transformation when you agree that Jesus is who he says he is. When you say that is the child of promise, the fruition of God's great plan throughout human history, from the moment it was corrupted, his plan to bring it back to its original state. There's a transformation that you receive the spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus up out of that grave is the same spirit that determines that we are no longer slaves and fearful of him, but rather children of the promise. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. And in fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Dark times are not the absence of God. Dark times are a revelation that reminds us that while our present is in flux and finite and changing, that our future is infinite that our future is secure and secured by the one who never knows how to fail. The only being that when he speaks by necessity of his character, he has to speak truth. Jesus says to us that because of our changed position, because we have the privilege of calling him eternal father, we can approach knowing we're invited. 
He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be open. He echoes this passage that we started with in Isaiah 8. He says, don't go to all those other places for wisdom that needs to be updated. Don't go there when you have the living God that you call ruler and father. He says, don't be foolish to get substandard wisdom from people who have no idea what they're talking about. You call the living God dad, knock, ask, it will be given to you. Which of you fathers, if, you ask, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He says, look, if you imperfect dads still know how to marginally take care of your children, how much more then does the one who is good, the only one that is perfect, know how to give you what you need when you need it. He says, don't trust them. Trust me, eternal father. The one whose plan has stood the test of thousands and thousands of years. The one whose textbook never needs to be updated. The one who left perfect heaven to come down to considerably less perfect earth. Not as a ruler, but as a child. So that I could chase those of you who have run far from me. So that you can say, I know that guy. That's my dad. We have a temptation to dumb down eternal, infinite God so that we can understand it. But when we dumb it down to something we understand, we take everything that is divine and powerful and glorious out of the equation. If your God always behaves the way you think he should, he's a God of your own creation. You're not worshiping eternal God. If your God never asks anything of you that you cannot conceive, you do not worship the one true God. You worship an imaginary figure. We have to resist the temptation to dumb down what is eternal and make it finite. We have to resist the temptation of when we open our family history, which we call the Bible, and we read it, we have the tendency to treat it like a how-to book which is, is good. Like there's some good advice in there, but that's not the great thing about the book. When we read it as a how-to book, we get good things like, hey, don't lie. Would the world be better if people stopped lying? Absolutely. We get really good things like be nice to each other. Would the world be better if people were nice to each other? Absolutely. But people who don't know God can do that. People who have no concept of who God is cannot lie and love their spouses and be nice to people and be generous. The how-to isn't the most important part of the book. That's not a how-to book, that's a he is book. How-to is information. And if information could transform you, you wouldn't be where you are today. 
The revelation of who he is is what's transformative. When you get something out of there that reveals his essence and his character and it makes you go, oh, dang. That's what you'll run through brick walls for. That's what you'll suffer for. For a God that's so big and so infinite, he defies description. For a God that you can't wrap your head around. For a love that makes no sense. God did not create you and me because he was lonely. Perfect beings don't get lonely. He created you and me because he's the greatest good that ever existed. And what do you do when you eat a meal at a good restaurant? You say, hey, homie, I just had good dinner. You should go there. What do you do when you see a good movie? You say, hey, my friend, you should go see this movie. So what does good God does when he's the best God, the best entity, the most amazing being that has ever existed? He goes, I gotta share this. So he shares it with us that we can enjoy him for eternity, that we as finite beings can cross the gap that he bridged and call the eternal our father. When we dumb that down and we just read about behavior modification, we take all the teeth out of our faith. We, what, we take what is great about who he is and we reduce it to smoking less and saying fewer curse words and saying three minutes of prayers at night. That is not the life to which we have been called. He did not enter human history so that you could sin a little bit less than your next door neighbor. He entered human history so you can look up at the sky and know your dad knows the number of those stars so that he could put things into play that we could look back on and go, I can't even fathom that. How great is my dad that he always knows what I need. And while here I am in this moment, I will be tested and I will be tried and my finite existence is always in peril and always in question and always changing. My infinite destination never is in doubt because my God has spoken and what he says never needs updating and it never needs change. And I know this is another place where I pull the student pastor card. I know I'm supposed to give you like three keys or three things you're supposed to do or something like that. I don't really do that. I know I'm supposed to get action steps. Here's your action step. Quit dumbing down God. That's your action step. Look at that and go, dang, don't figure him out. You can't do it. Just stand in awe of the one that bled for you and me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that even though we at times are faithless and we turn to things that are not you for stability and we turn to things that are not you for guidance, you always welcome us back into your arms. We ask that this Christmas we look at the baby in the manger and we see everything that you intend us to see that you take the blindness out of our eyes and we see the goodness that is you and we see the power that is you and we see the infinite being that is you and instead of trying to understand you, we just worship you. And in worshiping you, we're grateful for you and that revelation of your character reaches deep inside the spirit that you've put in us and that you love us and that you care for us and that we in kind respond and love you back. We ask these things by the power of the Spirit and in your Son's name, amen.